Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Let me say from the outset that I have nothing against small towns. In fact, I grew up in one myself. Population 2000, right in the middle of the Canadian prairies. Nearest big city was Winnipeg. And then after that, you had to go at least 500 miles before you hit any major population center. I also want to make sure that you know that I think living in a small town is not a bad idea. It's not. It can be a wonderful, low-stress, low-cost, secure existence. In fact, a lot of the people I went to school with still live in my small town. But there are those who want out. People who want to experience more of the world. They find their lot dull, a dead end, too far from where the action is. But how to escape? See, that's the problem. One way would be just to buy a bus ticket and hit the highway. You could uh, maybe join the armed forces, or maybe you could form a band, write some songs, and become world famous. But, uh, yeah, that'll never happen, right? Or could it? There's this old saying that all you need to change the world, your world, is three chords and an attitude. doesn't matter where you're from. You can be from the smallest town on the map, even a town too small to be on a map. But if you get in with the right bunch of people and manage to pull together some good songs, who knows what might happen? Well, here, let me give you some concrete examples. You don't have to be from L.A. or London or some other big city. You can be from wherever. These are some big, big bands who actually come from small, small towns. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. I was one of those people who could not wait to get out of my small town. And until I decided that I wanted to work in radio, I had no idea how I was going to do it or where I was going to go. So my first attempt was playing in a bunch of bands. We were going to be famous rock stars. Uh, but the truth is, we never managed to hold it together longer than to play a few bars. I don't even remember writing any original material. And we were always being told by everybody with an earshot that we would never, ever make it. Their message was, look around you. No rock stars could ever come out of here. Well, they were right. Maybe if we had moved to a big city and decided to take a vow of poverty until we either made it, starved to death, or overdosed. But, uh, but we didn't. We ended up believing all the doomsayers and our parents. And we ended up being too scared, too sensible to do much of anything. So much for that. But that was just my band. I want to prove that it can be done. You can be from a small town and still make it big. Maybe this will serve as some kind of inspiration to somebody. Certainly hope so. Here's how we'll do it. Let's start with bands from larger towns and then progressively move to smaller centers. The biggest place that we're going to deal with is Issaquah, Washington. 
This is a place just outside of Seattle, and it's very famous for its salmon hatchery. The most optimistic census puts the population at 36,081 souls. This is the hometown of Isaac Brock, frontman for Modest Mouse, as well as the bass player Eric Judy and drummer Jeremiah Green. Family life was a little messed up for Isaac. He was homeschooled for a while, but then his mom left his father for his father's brother. Then the house flooded, which meant that she had to move into her husband's trailer. But there was no space in the trailer for Isaac, so he stayed at the flooded-out house on the second floor until the cops made him move. After living in a friend's basement for a while, Isaac built a shack next to the trailer, and this became the rehearsal space for Modest Mouse. They called it The Shed. Isaac first picked up a bass when he was 15 and then switched to guitar after borrowing one from a friend. And at the time, things were exploding in nearby Seattle, which was an inspiration for everybody to do something. It took a while for Modest Mouse to break through. Six albums, actually. But they finally caught everybody's attention with a 2004 record called Good News for People Who Love Bad News. Modest Mouse with Float On from their 2004 breakthrough album, Good News for People Who Love Bad News. A big band from a small-ish town, Issaquah, Washington, population 36,081. Next, we're going to move to Lindsay, Ontario, a place of 20,354 souls northeast of Toronto. Here lie the roots of the Strumbellas. Four of the six members are from there, including songwriter Simon Ward, a former member of, get this, a hip-hop group called Clip Squad. The other two came aboard after Simon placed an ad on Craigslist looking for more players, and we can say that the Strumbellas officially came together in 2008. They slugged it out for a couple of years, making the trip down to Toronto countless times to play the bars and clubs. There was one EP and two well-regarded albums, but no real notoriety other than a couple of Juno nominations in the Roots and Traditional category and sales per album were at the 15,000 copy level. So, no big deal, right? But then they came to the attention of Daniel Glass at Glassnote Records. This is the indie label that's home to Phoenix and Mumford and & Sons and Churches. The Strombella's manager made contact, sent them samples of the band's third album, and waited by the phone. And then it rang. We like the record, and Daniel Glass is flying to Toronto to see the band live. Everybody got along, and the deal was struck. Suddenly, the Strombellas were part of the machine, and before they knew it, their Hope album had a worldwide release, which was followed by a series of tours and TV appearances and hit singles. And this is the one that started everything. I got guns in my head and they won't go. Spirits in my head and they won't go. I got guns in my head and they won't go. Spirits in my head and they won't go. Strombellas, hometown, Lindsay, Ontario, population 20,354. Next on the list is this group from Aberdeen, Washington. Yeah, them. At the time Nirvana was formed, 
the population of their hometown was no greater than 16,896. This is where Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic met up and became lifelong buddies. Now, Aberdeen is this really dreary logging town. It's about an hour west of Olympia. The place features lots of trailer parks, many of which allegedly harbor grow-ups for pot and magic mushrooms. And there's, there's lots of crystal meth. It's the way some people supplement their incomes now that the logging industry is in trouble. There's a new biodiesel project, but, you know, that can only do so much. Maybe they should go back to hosting bordellos. Sixty years ago, Aberdeen was a place where sailors would put into port, and at one point, the place had up to 50 brothels that happily serviced them. And not only is Aberdeen in this perpetual economic decline, but it can also get up to seven feet, and yes, I did say seven feet of rain per year. So no wonder the place has one of the highest suicide rates in the state. Kurt started life at 1210 East 1st Street. Dad worked as a mechanic at the Chevron station over on Simpson Street. Chris was born in California, but his family moved to Aberdeen when he was 14. Well, why would they move there? Well, property prices were too high in California, and besides, Aberdeen had a lot of Croatian families, something that appealed to Chris's dad. He got a job as a machinist in one of the lumber mills, and Mum opened a beauty salon called Maria's Hair Design on South M Street. Kurt and Chris met up in high school and bonded over punk rock, especially hardcore punk. Their first band was called the Stiff Woodies. They spent a lot of time rehearsing at Maria's Hair Design. Kurt was the drummer, Chris was on bass, and a bunch of people rotated through on guitars and vocals. On September 1st, 1986, Kurt moved into his own place, which was really nothing more than a shack at 1,000 and a half East 2nd Street. It was all he could afford while working as a janitor at a place called the Polynesian Inn Resort. It was around this time that Kurt and Chris hooked up with a troublemaker named Aaron Burkhardt, a guy whose claim to fame was accidentally driving through the front windows of the local supermarket. He was also very famous for surviving a car crash where the driver was killed. Later in 86, Burkhardt was gone. He thought it would be much smarter if he took that manager's job at Burger King than stay in a band. He was replaced by Chad Channing, a chef at a seafood restaurant and the son of an often-fired radio DJ. By the fall of 1987, the band was called Nirvana, and everybody relocated to Olympia, and then Seattle, leaving Aberdeen behind for good. Here's the earliest Nirvana anyone's ever been able to find. It's Kurt, Chris, and Chad playing a house party in Raymond, Washington, which is about 25 miles south of Aberdeen. The date is sometime in March of 1987, and it's their version of Led Zeppelin's Heartbreaker. Nirvana, live in Raymond, Washington, March 1987. The drummer at the time was Chad Channing, and their roots are in Aberdeen, Washington, which has a population of 16,896. That's still, you know, a fair-sized town, but we're going to get much smaller than that. We'll move to the UK next to get to the roots of one of the biggest stadium spectacles in the world today. For this program, we're looking at big bands that came from small towns. Our next stop is Tainmouth, population 14,748. You'll find this place in the southwest of England. Guitarist and singer Matt Bellamy's family moved here in the mid-1980s when he was around eight years old. Bass player Chris Wollstenholm is originally from Rotterdam, a city of about 100,000, but he ended up in Tainmouth going to community college. 
And then there's drummer Dominic Howard. He's originally from the Manchester area, but moved with his family to Tenmouth when he was about eight. The three guys played in separate bands at Tenmouth Community College before finally getting together in a group called Gothic Plague, which then evolved into Rocket Baby Dolls. They were into this glam rock thing. Then, after shocking themselves by winning a local Battle of the Bands contest, they began to think that maybe they did have a shot at doing something. On the advice of one of their teachers, they changed their name to Muse, decided to skip university, quit their jobs, and moved away. For the next five years, they worked as painters and decorators by day, taking jobs wherever they could, and at night they played in whatever pubs would have them. It was awfully hard, but they kept at it. And look where they are now. Muse, formed in Tenmouth, Devon, England. Population, 14,748. We're going to stay in England for our next band, but we're going to take a big step down in population. Barely 6,000 people live in Battle, which is in the southeast of England. And it's called Battle because back in 1066, this is where William the Conqueror kicked the crap out of King Harold II. The history of England as we know it begins here. It's also in the hometown of Keene, and their roots go all the way back to March 8, 1979. This was the day that singer Tom Chaplin was born, and it was also the same birthday as a guy named Tom Rice Oxley. The two mothers bonded over newborns, and they became friends. Now, eventually, Tom Chaplin met up with Tom Rice Oxley's brother, Tim. They later ended up at the same private school, which was owned by Tom's family. Keen, as a band, didn't really come together until 1997 after everybody had a chance to go to university for a bit, and it almost didn't happen. By this time, Tim Rice Oxley was a pretty good piano player, and some dude named Chris Martin was so impressed, he had asked him to join his band, which was called Coldplay. Tim thought that Keen was a better bet, so he said no to Chris. Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Anyway, Keen made their live debut on July 13, 1998 in London. A record deal followed in 1999, and the big breakthrough came with the Hopes and Fears album in 2004. Where did the name come from? Well, the group used to be called the Lotus Eaters, but there was already a band with that name from the 1980s, so they switched to Cherry Keen. And Cherry Keen was a real person, a friend of Tom Chaplin's mom. Then, Cherry Keen died of cancer and left some money to Tom's family, some of which went to Tom, which he then invested in his musical aspirations. As a tribute to her, they renamed the band after her. After a while, though, they shortened the name from Cherry Keen to just Keen. Sounds all pretty community-oriented and small town, doesn't it? It's because it was. Keen, hometown Battle, England. Population 6,000. 48. Back to Canada for this next one. Norwood, Ontario has about 4,041 people. You'll find it on a map east of Peterborough. It's famous for a couple of things. First of all, there's the annual Thanksgiving Fair every October, and the fact that it's the hometown of Three Days Grace. This is where Adam Gontier, Neil Sanderson, and Brad Waltz grew up, and this is where they formed Three Days Grace in 1997. The group grew out of another band called Groundswell, which began in 1992, but it didn't go very far. 
When Three Days Grace started up, they played as many gigs as they possibly could. And at one point, they even opened for a movie at a local theater. Eventually, though, they knew they had to go big or stay home. So they moved to Toronto, where they met a producer, created some demos, and landed a record deal. And they beat the odds. Three platinum albums in the U.S., platinum albums in Canada, worldwide sales close to $5 million. Their second record, 1X, debuted at number five on the Billboard album charts. And in 2007, no rock band received more radio airplay across all of North America than Three Days Grace. And they also have a half dozen Juno nominations to their credit. Now, try to go back to the late 90s when the group was first starting up in Norwood. People must have said, oh, that's so cute. You want to be famous rock stars. But come on, look around. You haven't got a chance. Yeah. Three Days Grace, who, for a while, were one of the biggest rock acts in the world. And they're from Norwood, Ontario. Population, 4,041. And we can go smaller still. Up next, a band from the Deep South from a town that no one has ever heard of. The name of this show is Big Bands from Tiny Towns. It's proof you don't have to be from some major center to make it big. Check this out. Way down in southern Mississippi, right on the Gulf Coast along Interstate 10, an area called, and I'm not making this up, the Redneck Riviera, is the town of Escatapa. It's east of Biloxi, west of Mobile, Alabama, uh, south of Hattiesburg, and part of the area around Pascagoula. This is where you'll find Three Doors Down. They were formed in 1996 because they really had nothing better to do. But things went surprisingly well, and they decided to record some original material. The first song that gained any attention was Superman, which ended up being a hit on a local radio station. That sort of thing almost never happens. After that, their reputation spread throughout the region and then up the East Coast all the way to New York. A gig at CBGB caught the attention of Republic Records, a subsidiary of Universal Music, and they signed them to a deal. Their first album, which was called The Better Life, came out in 2000 and turned out to be one of the better-selling records of the year, selling somewhere around 6 million copies worldwide. The next album, called Away From The Sun, sold $4 million. Things tailed off a little bit after that, but the band is still together and they're still releasing albums and still touring. Again, try to imagine the stick they took at the beginning. Come on! No rock stars coming of the Redneck Riviera? Give it up, losers! Well, really? From Escatapa, Mississippi, population 3,566. That's three doors down with Kryptonite from their multi-platinum debut, The Better Life, which is what they ended up with. Most of them, anyway. Original guitarist Matt Roberts died of an overdose in 2016. He'd left the band in 2012. Let's take a moment to acknowledge Kid Rock. Yeah, he achieved his fame while living in Detroit, but his hometown is Romeo, Michigan, which is in the southeastern part of the state. Population 3,596. This is a guy that sold 25 million records. Then we have Trent Reznor. The roots of Nine Inch Nails are found in Mercer, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour north of Pittsburgh and about 90 minutes east of Cleveland. Population 2,391. Trent was brought up by his grandparents after his parents divorced. The town is a pretty conservative place. It was a really big deal when the McDonald's opened at the local mall. 
Mercer once suspended all criminal trials over the Christmas season because authorities were worried that the juries might be possessed by the Christmas spirit and be a little too soft on the accused. And here's what Trent had to say about growing up in small-town America. My scope of travel was maybe a half-hour radius, and every town had the same Kmart and Cineplex, all playing the same five movies, all Sylvester Stallone. It's hard for people who've grown up in cities to understand that, to have an endless cornfield in your backyard. But that's what a lot of America is. It's not dodging gunfire from gangs. It wasn't cool to play music where I was, and I got a pretty bad education because I had a bad attitude. If I wanted to get good grades, I could. Stuff I'd like to know now, at the time, I thought was irrelevant. Typical teenage stupidity. I hated school. The fact that it revolved around something you didn't have access to. If you weren't on the football team and you were in the band, you were a leper. When people say those are the best years of our lives, I want to scream. But my parents allowed me to do things that my friends weren't allowed to do. Saying this ring true with you? When Trent graduated from high school, he enrolled in a computer course at nearby college in Meadville, which had a population of 15,000. But he dropped out and went to live in the woods with his father for about a year. But music kept drawing his attention away to the big city of Cleveland. He moved there, got a job in a music store, then a recording studio, and then, uh, well, you know the Nine Inch Nails story after that, right? Nine Inch Nails with head nail Trent Reznor, a native of Mercer, Pennsylvania, a place with a population of 2,391. Let's pause for a second to talk about Nickelback. They're from Hannah, Alberta, a town of 2,673 people, about two and a half hours northeast of Calgary. Officially, this is the home of the Canada Grey Goose. It's in the town logo, and there was a restaurant on 2nd Avenue called the Canada Grey. Might still be there, I don't know. Say what you want about Nickelback, but they have sold more than 50, that's 50 million albums. Only one other foreign band has sold more records in the U.S. than Nickelback, and that's the Beatles. Out of all the bands on our big band small towns list, there is no bigger group from a smaller town. But as for the smallest town that gave birth to an internationally known band, we have to go to Wales, in a town that has way too many consonants and way too few vowels. It's, um, Quamaman, C-W-M-A-M-A, I don't know. My apologies to the Welsh people for my horrible pronunciation. The village is at the end of a dead-end road in South Wales. The only road in is the only road out. In other words, no one can just drive through Quamaman. This makes for a very close-knit place. It's also a former coal mining town. The mine has been shut for years, but even so, a lot of people decided to stay on. Apparently, the place has quite the pub culture. No one seems to mind if all the underage kids come in with their parents. It's probably better than sitting around and watching TV or looking at uh, YouTube videos, right? All three founding members of Stereophonics were born in the same nearby hospital. Kelly Jones, the leader of the band, lived just eight doors away from drummer Stuart Cable and his mother Mabel. That's right, her name is Mabel Cable. Meanwhile, Richard Jones, the bass player, lived in the house across the street from the football pitch. When they were all about 10 years old, all three guys been in the park and started talking about forming a band. Over the years, they had several. 
The first was Zephyrs, then it was Tragic Love Company, which is actually an interesting story. The name Tragic Love Company was an amalgamation of the band's three favorite groups, The Tragically Hip, Mother Love Bone, and Bad Company. Drummer Stuart Cable was also a huge, huge Rush fan. Interesting how Canadian music managed to penetrate this dead-end mining town, huh? And finally, the name Stereophonics. That was caught from the name of a record player manufacturer. After a series of -of out-of-town gigs supporting bigger bands, they became one of the first signings to Richard Branson's new V2 label. Singles turned into an album, and one album became two, and three, and more. And now, Stereophonics are making a very nice living by touring the world while still owning homes in the tiny dead-end mining town in South Wales, which, as far as I can tell, has a population holding at about 1,000. Stereophonics and have a nice day. They're from Quomman in southern Wales. Population is about a thousand. It is much easier to be a pessimist than an optimist. And yeah, the chances of any band from anywhere making it big is a really long shot. But that shouldn't stop anyone from trying. So what if it's hard? It's supposed to be hard. Doing something awesome should be hard. Yes, the possibility of failure is real especially in the world of professional music. But trying to make it is a great adventure. At the very least, you'll have some fun and have plenty of stories to tell later. Three chords and an attitude. That's all anybody needs to get started. Where things go from there is up to you and fate. Let's keep the conversation going at my website, at journalofmusicalthings.com. There's a free daily newsletter you should get. I'm always around on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Google+. And I always answer all emails sent to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful, uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like architects. Do you sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? 
I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video; now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean. We're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker, so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith, and I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. 
And that's what got that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry like a wolf video. Like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and 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 just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.